This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's another labor fight brewing in Canada. This time, it's in the telecom industry. Rogers Communication has locked out hundreds of employees. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and it's very quickly become the labor relations reporter on Now with Dave Brown. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, there are a few threads to tug at here. First yes. things first, who are the affected employees? Well, yeah, another Monday, another strike. Uh, this one, as you as you mentioned, it's it's Rogers. And what makes this one more interesting, it's not a huge st- a strike in terms of scale. We're talking about maybe 300 or so technicians. But what makes this one a bit more interesting is the backdrop. If you remember, uh, there was a lot of chatter earlier this year about Rogers and Shaw and their mm-hmm. big merger, their $26 mm-hmm. billion dollar merger that had all kinds of regulatory drama, but it did go through earlier this year, and now we're seeing some of that fallout. Uh, These are 300 technicians that were employed by Shaw and therefore were absorbed in the merger. Uh, There's been contract negotiations going on since February or so. So I think even before the merger officially closed, I don't have, don't quote me on that, but I believe that's the case. Um, but what happened is the, the the negotiations weren't going well. Similar sticking points to what we've seen: wages a little bit, but mostly contract work and and, and employers trying to contract uh, union tasks out to, to outsiders. Those are the main sticking points. Um, the technicians served notice that they were going to start rotating strikes starting today at noon. But then on the weekend, the wrinkle was that Rogers said, "No, actually, we're just going to lock you out." So that's where we stand right now: no rotating strikes. Uh, the union says that they had planned to keep working to some degree just with the rotating strikes, but now they're off the job entirely because of the lockout. Michelle, go a little bit deeper into that back and forth around strike mandates and then the eventual company decision to do the lockout. Mm-hmm. What, like what, what's the response been to that? What's sort of some of the analysis on that? So what's been, yeah, the pattern that we've seen in terms of these talks is similar to what we've had on all the other labor stories we've had in that these these were ongoing talks. The union gave a preemptive strike mandate a couple of months ago when talks were still ongoing, but 99% or so said, yeah, we will go on strike if you can't have any success. And that was the the sort of driving force behind the union's actions. And when they resolved on the rotating strikes, they felt they had the green light to do that. Uh, it was really only on the weekend uh, when Rogers said that you, the union had communicated their intentions, but then refused to cooperate any further. So Rogers just decided to lock them out. Mm. Um, they're saying that they're doing that in order to maintain reliability. Um, again, the union counters that by saying, well, now we're off the job in full instead of just having to be partially off the job. So they don't really see where that's coming from. Um, but that's that's kind of the sequence of events that's been going on here. And okay. I mentioned before that the, the contract work is the big, big sticking point. And that's the one where we've been hearing more about wages being the central concern in a lot of these 
uh, mediation or, or negotiation situations. Not so this time. It's more about making sure that union jobs stay with union workers. Yeah, it's the notion of it's the notion of temporary or precarious work. That's something that a lot of unions are starting to realize in a more uh, precarious workforce and companies looking for a lot of contract work. It's something that yeah, it's it's deeply concerning for unions. I believe that came up a little bit during the uh, federal civil service strike earlier this year as well. Uh, the notion of relying on contract workers. Absolutely, and I think it was a factor in the port strike as well. So it it hasn't gotten as much ink or airtime as as wage issues and wage concerns, which of course are really driven being driven by the inflationary talk as well. But yeah, subcontracting work is a, it has been a major thread in a lot of these labor strife scenarios that we've seen play out this year, mm-hmm. even if it's not as high profile. Michelle, staying in the work, labor, and life balance file, you see there's a theme here, veterinarians across the country are experiencing burnout Mm. from their jobs. So what's the relevant background around veterinarians and burnouts? Yeah, my colleague Lindsay Armstrong had a really interesting story about this on the weekend. I'd encourage animal lovers to give it a read because the doctors who care for our pets and guide dogs and such uh, have been having a rough time from the looks of it in ways that I never quite realized. Uh, there's a number of factors at play. It turns out vets have always been at higher risk of suicide to the tune of almost 10% over or, over the, the, the base population. But the pandemic has really uh, exacerbated that situation for a lot of people. But there are a few factors. A, the pandemic boom in pets. Yeah, I'm sure yep. we can all think of yep. someone who said, I need a puppy during the pandemic and went and got one. Uh, so there's been that kind of explosion. There's been a, a great reduction because of the suicide rates, the mental health toll of delivering a, so much end-of-life care and seeing all the uh, vast array of experiences and, and animal treatments that vets would encounter. Uh, that's been leading to a bit of an exodus from the profession, people burning out or or unfortunately dying or just say opting out, kind of like what we're seeing on the human healthcare side of things. Um, so there's been an exodus from the profession along with this boom in pets. So we have staffing shortages, unwillingness to have new people joining in. And it's, it's, it's both vets and vet technicians, by the yeah, way. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, there's that ripple effect too, is if, if you have vets, you don't have technicians and then you can't really run a practice. So all these factors are are putting a lot of strain on the system. And several provinces are reporting major vet shortages. Uh, Lindsay's story talked about one very sad situation in rural New Brunswick, where they're the only vet clinic in, in the region, uh, unfortunately died by suicide. And now it's a couple of neighboring vets from further counties are trying to keep the hospital going, but it's difficult. So... It's uh, it's playing out in a lot of different ways, but it is a much bigger problem and, and quite widespread. I never really realized until reading the story. Uh, Michelle, I, I've got a theory here um, beyond sort okay. of the very reasonable things like staff shortages, uh, which which like makes sense, right? Or the idea of being twenty four seven on call to service people mm, like that. That's a like, big one. That yep. really matters. I would just say this: jobs that require empathy are exhausting. And if I, I can't think of many jobs that require more empathy than than dealing with someone whose pet is in a crisis, because uh, whether people like this or accept this or not, pets are family members. And when Absolutely. someone's pet is in a distressed situation, they're in a distressed situation. So you're not just taking care of the animal, you're taking care of the human as well. And just jobs that require empathy are exhausting. They're extremely exhausting. Uh, I think that's as good a theory as any, really. Uh, 
it's it's hard. It's a difficult situation. The other thing too is expenses are. It's a very expensive industry to be in, as uh, those of us who pay vet bills know. Those costs often get passed down, but there are major major operational costs to to having veterinary practices. And uh, that's another yeah. barrier that's keeping and, people out and, of the industry. That's interesting. And standards, Sorry. right? Like, 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 because like you are delivering healthcare, so there are standards about how you have to keep your own practice up. It's super expensive yeah. to get your 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 veterinary degree. Like, vet schools are not oh, yeah. cheap to go to. It takes years to get, and then even then, you can't just open a practice right out of school. You typically go have to you have to go apprentice somewhere for a stretch as well. So it, it's a, it's an extremely difficult job to break into with a huge barrier to entry, both financially and time-wise. Absolutely. And the, you mentioned practices, you know, opening your own practice, and that's another interesting thread, actually. As people try to sort of mitigate the effects of all this burnout on themselves, apparently a trend that the veterinary colleges have been seeing are those people who don't want to open their own practice, prefer instead to work as part of someone else's and have a bit more flexibility and to say, no, you know what, I don't want to work Thursdays and Fridays, or I'm only going to work these hours. So people are opting out of the owning their own practice model that does put them on call 24-7 and try to find measures that would give them a little bit more in terms of work-life balance. And that itself is contributing to the shortage. Michelle, thank you for taking a little bit of time to talk about this story. I appreciate it. Have a nice day. My pleasure. Take care, Dave. So you heard Michelle uh, mention mental health crisis a couple times there, and I just think it's worth mentioning on the way out that if you are someone who is experiencing a mental health crisis uh, in Canada, there are local crisis centres, or you can call the 24-7 Canada Suicide Prevention Service, which is available in French or English at one 456 4566. That's 1 833 456 4566. There's also the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness 24 7 helpline at 1 855 242 3310. 1 855 242 3310. And if you are a young person, there's always the kids' help phone, which you can text CONNECT to 686. 868 6868868 those are those uh, relevant points of contact there just wanted to mention that on the way out there as we uh, sort of wandered into um, some delicate mental health side of that conversation coming up next the average vacancy rate in new brunswick is 1.9% so what does that mean for canadians with disabilities in the housing market more broadly, Shelley Petit of the Coalition, New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities will offer her analysis. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.